Welcome back and happy July. It is July 1st, which means the Fab Four Fundamentals is going back on sale for Independence Day weekend. The sale lasts from July 1st through the 6th. The price of the course is being slashed from $250 to $197. It includes the 15 videos, 40 pages of downloadable PDFs, and five Zoom classes with yours truly where you can ask any of your personal questions. So I cannot wait to welcome class two. Class one was so much fun. I feel like everyone on the other side of my computer are my new best friends. So we've had a lot of fun and I think everybody's learned a lot. The reviews have been great. So definitely check those out. Today's guest is someone that I've been looking forward to speaking to for a very long time, but I want to preface this subject matter. Today, we're going to talk about birth control. I know this is a very divisive topic. So I want to be clear, in no way am I discouraging the use of birth control. It's something I have personally used and needed at certain times. I just felt called to provide you with an education on the potential side effects of this pharmaceutical drug so you can make the most informed decision for yourself or your children as to when the best time is to use birth control as a tool. So without further ado, let's get to the intro. Dr. Sarah Hill is today's guest. She is a research psychologist and professor who studies health, relationships, and other forms of social behavior. Her new book, This Is Your Brain on Birth Control, is going to open your mind to some unintended consequences your gynecologist may not have discussed with you when it comes to taking birth control. Her research lab is located in the Department of Psychology at TCU in Fort Worth, Texas. And she also is a writer and a speaker with a passion for helping people learn about science and the ways it can help them feel happier, healthier, and better connected, which is why I think it makes us soul sisters. So I had (laughs) to have Sarah on the show. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Oh, I mean, I think I have so many questions, so we should just dive right in. I want to lay down the foundation of education for people because, you know, I think sex ed was in junior high. So right. maybe we haven't, <laughs> we haven't really gotten into that in a long time. But I'm just curious if you could explain how your sex hormones change during your menstrual cycle. Yeah, no, this is um, not usually part of the conversation that you get in a health class. So usually in health class, they give you the piece about how you know your um, your eggs start to mature, and then it makes its you know valiant journey down the fallopian tube, and you like hear all of these things, but you don't really get um, into anything like what does this mean experientially for women. Right. So like what like does that change how we feel? Does that change how we think or experience the world? Um, and there's been a growing body of research in psychology over the last 20 years or so that shows that the answer to that is absolutely yes. And the way that our hormones change across the cycle, um, generally in a, a, you know an average um, menstrual cycle, which of course there's really no such thing, but um, let's just say the average cycle is about 28 days long. And during the first part of the cycle, um, the egg is maturing in the egg follicle. And that process, when the egg is growing, is actually causing the release of estrogen. Um, and so estrogen gets gets released in increasingly high amounts until right before, like usually right around day 12 to 14 of the cycle. So um, 12 to 14 days after the first day of your last menstrual cycle, um, you'll hit this peak in estrogen levels, um, which triggers the release of this um, this hormone called luteinizing hormone um, that causes the egg to, um, you know, make its way down the tube. I mean, at that point, your body also starts to release progesterone, 
Um, so this, during the first half of the cycle, it's a very estrogen dominant phase of the cycle, days one or day zero to, um, to 12 or 14. Um, and then after the egg is released, then you get this increase in progesterone levels. Um, and progesterone is then the dominant sex hormone. And so um, progesterone levels are high relative to levels of um, estrogen. And each of these phases of the cycle, you know, a really simple way of thinking about it is that there's two phases, right? The estrogen dominant first half and then the progesterone dominant second half. Um, and you feel differently and you think differently and you experience the world differently as a woman, depending on which of these phases you're in. So during the, the estrogen heavy phase of the cycle, that's really the sort of like, I always refer to that as like the energetic sex kitten part of your, of your cycle. You like look more attractive, you feel more attractive, you're thinking about sex more, you're um, having more sex, you notice men, you're really attuned to things that are related to courtship. So even things like... Um, you know, music and and movement and new experiences. Like our our senses are literally heightened when estrogen is the dominant hormone. Like our neurons are more responsive to stimuli from the environment. We feel more vibrant. We feel more alive. Um, the second half of the cycle, um, when progesterone is dominant, that's usually a little bit more of a chill time um, in the cycle. And that's because um, progesterone, when it's broken down in the body, actually creates these metabolites that act very similar to, um, to the neurotransmitter GABA, which is one of the calming um, you know, parts of our... It's, it's how our brain sort of winds itself down chills out and relaxes. And so during the second half of the cycle, we're generally a little bit less energetic and we tend to be more relaxed. We're not as sort of high strung and excitable as we are in the first half of the cycle. I mean, this is generally when women are a little bit sleepier and hungrier. And, you know, so we eat more, we move less um, than we do during the, during the first half of the cycle. We're also less interested in sex. And this is something that, um, you know, can really be uh, something that if, if women actually are, are taught about this information, you really start to see it in yourself that as progesterone increases, um, that it tends to diminish sex drive. And it, it's, it's not just that estrogen fuels sex drive, which it does, um, but progesterone is also actually inhibitory when it comes to sex drive. And this is why some women report that they, like when they get their period, they get an increase in sexual desire. Um, even though estrogen levels are really low, just the dropping of progesterone is like awakens your sort of sexual attunement and um, people um, have an increase in sexual desire at that time. So It's, it's so interesting to me just thinking about how how a metabolite of progesterone is GABA. And so many women that I work with, whether they're on birth control or not, are looking for sleep aids. And that's like one of the strongest sleep aids for people if they're not taking something like a hormonal melatonin. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, no. So um, the the metabolite in question is called allopregnanolone and it stimulates GABA receptors. And so it, it causes all this GABAergic activity. And yeah, and it's totally a, a relaxer and a chiller. And um, and this is why, you know, this is also why um, the birth control pill, like as, you know, the sort of foreshadow um, can be linked with things like anxiety and depression is because the, the artificial hormones in the pill don't have the same effects. 
And so the levels of GABAergic activity, you know, this calming, chilling, I'm able to sleep well, I'm able to wind myself down at the end of a really tough day um, type of activity in the brain is diminished in, um, in women who are on the pill compared to women who aren't on the pill. Yeah. So let's get into the juicy stuff because so many people listening, I'm sure are on birth control and it is still like the number one choice for women when Mm -hmm. it comes to protecting against unwanted pregnancy. Um, What's happening on a chemical level when we're taking a birth control pill and what's happening on a physical level when it comes to our ovulation or lack thereof? Right. Yeah. And so the pill, you know, and just sort of as the, the, um, before we even like dive too deeply, because there's probably women who are on the pill listening to this thinking like, I'm turning off this episode. <laughs> like, yeah. I want to hear it. This sounds scary. I don't want to, I don't like, I don't yeah. know. I don't know. Um, uh, don't, nothing that, you know, nothing that we talk about today is going to be so, Alarming um, that it's gonna, you know, mean that the pill isn't the best choice for a lot of women. Still, I mean, the, the fact of the matter is, there's almost no investment um, that's being made into alternative forms of birth control for women. And um, so, for a lot of us, it's the best thing that we have. But I think that understanding the trade-offs that you're making and understanding what you're going through, I think, is a really powerful position to be in, even if you're on the birth control pill. So, I just wanted to put that out oh. there that this is not going to be a you know what, you're going to grow a tail and get cancer. So just forget it. Yeah. No, I think <laughs> it's going to be one of those kinds of conversations. I think that's really important for you to say because, um, you know, I don't know your personal experience, but there was you know, a time in college for me. And then a time when I first met my husband, Chris, when I had these intermittent periods of being on the birth control pill. And then, you know, after having Sebastian and thinking about getting pregnant again, but knowing I didn't want to have like kids, I don't know, Irish twins, yeah. you know, making those indecisions like, do I do this or do I not? And I think just having the education, if you're with a committed partner and you have other ways to figure it out, like mm-hmm. maybe, maybe you make that choice. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so it's it's just about sort of knowing exactly what it is that you're doing and, and how it's working in your body. And then you can make the choice that like, well, right now it makes sense, but maybe later it won't make sense. And this is all just about providing information. And, and, and the book is that way too. It's very much like, here's information and you can use this to strategize your birth control strategy throughout the throughout your lifetime. Totally. And um to, you know, to sort of get to the like you know, the sort of basics. Um, The way that the birth control pill works is actually really clever. And um, the way that it works is it actually works with um, the brain and its usual signaling machinery to suppress the whole process of ovulation. And so generally um, what happens right um, as a woman is um, getting her period. So on the first day of a menstrual cycle, um, your hormone levels crash. And that's actually what initiates um, the, the destabilization of the endometrium and then you know, causes the, the, the bleed that we all get. Um, and you know, when the hormone levels are really low, the brain, the hypothalamus in the brain senses this and says, oh, you're not pregnant. Like, let's, like, let's try again. And so the brain starts um, through the pituitary gland, starts releasing these uh, precursor hormones that tell the egg follicles to begin to mature, right? And so when hormone levels are low, the brain starts releasing signaling chemicals that then tell the ovaries, get at it. Like, you're not pregnant right now. We're going to try it again. Once the egg is released and and progesterone starts getting released in relatively high levels compared to levels of um, estrogen, 
That tells the brain, when the brain gets that signal, high progesterone, relatively low estrogen, that tells the brain, oh, we've just released an egg already. We've just released an egg. So we're just going to not release any precursor hormones because there's no need to start maturing another follicle. So the brain is in just like sit around and wait mode. Like, let's see if this one gets fertilized and then we'll figure out what to do next. And so what the birth control pill does is it actually mimics the second half of a woman's menstrual cycle. And so it has relatively high levels of synthetic progesterone, which is known as a progestin, and then relatively low levels of estrogen. And that message, that hormonal message of high levels of progestin relative to estrogen um, tells the brain not to release anything to get an egg developing. And so taking that every single day... basically prevents ovulation from ever occurring by preventing the maturation of an egg follicle and so nothing ever gets released. It's pretty, it's pretty clever. Um, so, but, but what this means hormonally, of course, is that you're creating this synthetic situation where every day you know, is the same hormonally and every day is sort of an artificial snapshot of what goes on during the second half of the cycle, the progesterone dominant half of the cycle. Right, so you don't get any of the benefits of this sort of sex kitten. I feel vibrant and alive and really attuned with my sexuality and my femininity and my senses are heightened and my neurons are more sensitive to the environment. You don't get to experience any of that. You're stuck in the I'm hungry and sleepy and, you know, um, and don't really feel like sex all that much part of the cycle. Um, and that's you know consistent with a lot of the experiences that women experience on the birth control pill. But in addition to that, because the synthetic molecules that are used to create these um, synthetic progesterones or progestins aren't chemically identical to progesterone, a lot of them are synthesized out of other things. Um, and that other thing is usually testosterone. Um, so they monkey around with the molecules of um, testosterone and then make them similar enough to progesterone that they get um, read as uh, progesterone by progesterone receptors in the brain. Um, but they also get picked up by other things in the body. And so in addition, you know, you don't just get a situation, a hormonal situation where women are sort of, you know, stuck in the luteal phase or the second half of their menstrual cycle, you're also getting a few other things that are going on in the body because these um, synthetic progestins also seem to be stimulating things like our receptors for cortisol, our receptors for testosterone and other things. And so we're actually creating this type of an experience that isn't actually biologically identical to anything that women experience naturally. Wow. That's, it's, so amazing and and just a little bit mind blowing to think about what are what's the cascade of other things happening in our body. Not only are you sort of feels like a little muted in your life, like it just maybe feels fuzzy and not as vibrant and exciting. And I think we all want a high sex drive, especially if you're in in a long term committed relationship. You gotta gotta work on keeping that high. <laughs> um, so, but but can we get into how it birth control may affect? your stress hormones like cortisol and how that affects your everyday life? Sure. Yeah. And we can kind of go through the, you know, some of the areas that research is really focused on when it comes to on the psychological effects of the pill. 
Um, you know, and, and one thing that, um, you know, is, is sort of important to understand, I think, as we kind of begin this conversation is that, you know, even though we tend to think about our sex hormones as, you know, influencing our ovary, you know, we think about things like our ovaries and our endometrial lining and all of these other things. Um, but one of the areas in our body that has the most, you know, the greatest number of receptors for sex hormones is our brain. And, um, and so, you know, what our sex hormones are doing has a really profound role on the way that our brain does business. Um, and this includes, like I was saying, you know, everything from how, you know, how sensitive your neurons are to stimuli in your environment, which was, is very much influenced by things like estrogen. Um, but even, you know, with our, our, you know, our appetite, like how hungry we feel or how tired we feel or how much energy we have or how sharp we feel mentally. All of these things are influenced by our hormones, um, our sex hormones. And, um, and because of this, taking the birth control pill does have the potential to really change the way that women are sort of thinking and feeling and experiencing the world around them. Um, and so, you know, it's only been in the last um, probably 20 or so years that researchers have really begun to start to explore, you know, the, the role of hormonal involvement generally in the brain, but um, then also the role of the birth control pill. Um, and, you know, the research does seem to indicate that there are some areas where the birth control pill does seem to have some pretty, you know, potent effects. And that includes things like, um, you know, who we are attracted to and the quality of our sex lives, um, you know, the nature of our stress response, which you uh, mentioned our mood and our ability to regulate our moods, um, you know, our ability to manage stress, um, our ability to sort of um, exercise self-control. There's like, it, it seems like there's a lot of different um, areas that the pill seems to have an impact. And so, um, you know, we can start with stress since, um, since that was something that you brought up. Um, and uh, this, this is actually really interesting to me too, because um, this was one of the things that really um, made me understand the need for writing this book. And that is um, because this was something that as a psychologist, I'd never heard of. And, you know, and, and I'm a psychologist who studies biological influences on you know, our, the way that women experience the world. And I'd never heard of this until um, I was doing the research um, on stress for something else. And um, in the paper, um, the researchers had noted that when women are on the birth control pill, um, they don't experience a, um, a change in stress hormones that people typically experience when they're going through something stressful. And they just sort of mentioned this as an aside because then they explained why they didn't include um, the data that they collected on women on the birth control pill. Um, and I heard this and it was really alarming to me. Um, and so I went to the research literature to like, is this a thing? <laughs> like, is this yeah. really a thing? And, um, and so I went and I saw that it was a thing and that researchers have been documenting this since like the 90s, um, that when women who are, are on the birth control pill, um, you don't get um, a surge in the stress hormone cortisol in response to something stressful. Because um, typically what happens when people are stressed out, so imagine that you're like giving a, a, a speech in front of people or you know, you are um, you meet somebody that you're really attracted to, and you think that you know you're going to start a new relationship. Like all these things, like good and bad, um, cause stress, right? And, and normally when we experience stress, um, we get this surge in cort or cortisol, and what it does um, is it actually helps our body cope with stress. Right? We tend to think about cortisol as being bad. 
because, you know, stress is bad. And so when we think about, oh, cortisol, you know, is bad. And like, and if it's chronically released, if we have chronic cortisol signaling and we're chronically stressed, that is bad. Mm -hmm. Um, But like just, you know, experiencing dynamic ebbs and flows of this hormone is like how our body actually incorporates information from the environment into our brain. You know, it's how we absorb experiences. Um, and that, you know, and, and so cortisol helps our body actually resolve stress and um, learn from it, you know, learn from stressful situations because it actually gets our brains primed for learning. Um, and so not having this response to stress, even though it might sound good, like, oh, I won't be stressed out. You know, um, it's not at all. How <laughs> but it you won't be learning. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. But you, but you still are stressed. Like if you ask women, um, you know, because they've done studies, then like really probing this effect, and like, do women on the pill actually experience less stress? Like, do they feel less stressed out in response to stressful situations? And the answer to that's absolutely no. Like they, they still feel stressed out, and they still experience. Um, there's a the, and the other part of the stress response besides the like cort, the cortisol response is um, sympathetic nervous system activity and this is the part where your heart starts racing and your mouth is dry and all of that stuff um, and women who are on the pill still experience all of that right and so they're still experiencing stress and they feel stress but they're not learning from it and their body actually is less able to regulate it like regulate the stressful situation and then bring itself back to a normal baseline state. Um, and so, of course, this is something that, you know, is um, not a positive, right? And it probably makes women less able to um, cope with stressful situations. But it also, you know, might make women less able to learn from stressful situations. As we said, nobody's really... There's been a couple of studies that have shown that um, pill-taking women, because of their lack of cortisol response to stress that they do have a tendency to be less able to remember emotionally charged events. Um, because wow. when emotionally charged events happen, so like your wedding day or something terrible, like you know September 11th, uh, 2001, or, or this, this pandemic. Yeah. Um, you know, like when we experience something stressful, um, even like good stress, like Christmas morning or wedding day, the birth of a child... Um, we remember those things really well. And cortisol is part of that because it helps, I mean, actually causes the uh, neurogenesis or the birth of new neurons in the memory centers of our brain. And it like grabs onto that information and holds onto it. And what this research found is that when you have um, pill-taking women and you put them in a stressful situation and then give them a memory test, they have worse recall of um, information about the emotionally charged parts of the events than do women who aren't on the pill. And um, you know, when you think about our lives, it's like that's like what makes our lives meaningful is being able to like grab onto these, you know, pieces of information from our lives and to like be less able to do that. You know, we don't know like what what this means for overall well being and that sort of thing. But I can't imagine it's good for it. No, absolutely. I think about all those really special moments from like, even even if it was a little bit traumatic, like the birth of my son or my wedding day or Bash's first Christmas. Like, I want to remember all of those moments because, you know, I realize that day to day, you know, this these mundane, normal work days are our life. They really are. But it's like those special moments that really just they they create meaning and depth and and they link all of those mundane days together. Yeah, you know, and it's really funny because for me, um, when I went off of the pill, 
Um, because that, that was actually part of what prompted me to write the book too, is that I was on it for, um, you know, in total, like about 11 or 12 years of my life. And when I went off of it, and it was after about three months um, after being off of it, I, I just felt a depth of humanness that I hadn't, you know, in a really long time. I just remember feeling like life feels so much more three-dimensional and textured now. It was just like I felt like I was experiencing more more depth and richness in everyday experiences, and I felt things in a way that I hadn't felt things in a long time. Everything felt sort of flat, and I didn't recognize it when I went on it. That was the thing that was really sort of scary and interesting. And when I, and as I've talked to women and their experiences um, with the pill, this I hear this over and over again, where they didn't really feel it when they went on it. They didn't really notice like, wow, you know, my life really feels flat and one dimensional. But then when they went off of it, sort of like, wow, like I didn't realize how much I was missing, how much nuance and like texture. Yeah, there was to my experiences. And I think that part of that is um, what's happening, you know, with the, with the stress hormones is that we're not really absorbing our lives in the way that we're supposed to. And I think that, you know, the sort of over time, not grabbing on to, I mean, even things that are hard and challenging for us, um, but then, you know, really beautiful moments too, and not like grabbing onto those and not really incorporating them into our sort of self, um, I think can lead to some of the mood related problems that we see when women are on the birth control pill. Um, because, you know, there is a lot of research linking um, birth control pill use to um, a heightened risk of anxiety and depression. And, and, you know, part of depression is like feeling like there's not meaning. And I think meaning is something that in part that we get from getting these dynamic changes in our stress hormones that help us incorporate um, the world into, you know, our experiences of who we are. Yeah, I think I read something somewhere where it was, it's, it's like apathy. It's like you, you, it's this feeling of like not caring and not, I'd much rather be emotionally charged and be a little more up and down than, than to not care and to not feel invested sort of be like watching my life from the outside. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, you know, having that and then also those changes in um, signaling, you know, the GABAergic activity in the brain or these GABA signaling um, that you get when you're not breaking down natural progesterone, which um, causes, you know, stimulation of GABA receptors. Um, These two things together can really, you know, wreak havoc on on women's mental health. And, you know, and over the last 10 years in particular, there's been growing. A number of uh, studies showing that you know uh, women who are on the birth control pill, um, especially women who are 19 and younger, um, but but even women who are older, you know, 19 and or, or 20 and older, um, can you know experience a really significantly increased risk of of having mental health problems like like depression and anxiety. So hard because it's not even anything that's talked about as a side effect to birth control. I think most of the time, it's the positive benefits that people are going to experience, not needing to, not needing to worry about getting pregnant, potentially clearing acne, lightening a period, getting rid of cramps. Like so many young women in high school and sometimes even younger are being put on the pill without, without the unknown consequences being even discussed. And do you think, sorry, do you think it's like a, a lack of education on the, on the doctors who are prescribing it or 
Yeah, you know, um, I, I do think I think that there's definitely um, a lack of education on issues related to um, psychology and neuroscience on the part of the medical community, and I don't think that it's um, you know I don't think that it's individual doctors' faults. Um, I think that you know it's like when medicine started as a practice a gazillion years ago, um, you know, we still had this like like Cartesian split, this idea that the mind and the body are separate entities. Um, and nobody really appreciated the fact that the brain is an organ in the body and therefore is subject to the, you know, everything, you know, like you're, the way that you feel and experience the world psychologically is a biological process. And it's something that can be understood in terms of things like health and wellness and, you know, your diet and all of these other things, which, um, you know, a growing number of, of like, uh, of doctors who take a functional medicine approach are actually finally like incorporating all of this and like understanding that the brain is an organ in the body. Um, but medicine originated before, you know, it was like the, everybody thought that the way that we feel and experience the world was like the soul, right? And so, so medicine, when you look at medical journals and like what it is that they're doing research on and what it is that they know a lot about, it's a lot about the sort of gears and sprockets of, of the body outside the brain, right? It's about like your heart valve or you know, your um, like venothrombosis and all of these things are really important. I'm not trying to trivialize how important it is for research on these things because none of us want to have, you know, venothrombosis or a heart attack from our birth control pills. Um, but at the same time, it's like they have absolutely no awareness, most doctors, of any of the research that's going on in neuroscience and psychology. And that's where all of this other research lives. And so they're not even reading it. Um, and it's because, you know, in science is this way, you know, it's like you have neuroscience and psychology over here and we live over here and medicine lives over here and nobody's crossing the street yeah. and looking at each other's research journals. It's like we all just get accustomed to reading the things that, you know, are sort of deemed important for what it is that we do. And, and for a long time, you know, with medicine, psychology and neuroscience wasn't in that area. And so doctors will prescribe this. Um, you know, without knowing about any of this, about this other science and this whole body of, of knowledge that's out there. Um, and and it, it is really concerning when, um, when we're talking about, especially these young girls, like you were saying, um, my daughter is 13 years old. And so she's in middle school and she's already got some of her friends who, who's, who've been put on the birth control pill, not because they're sexually active um, and trying to prevent pregnancy, which you know sometimes is a case because the benefit of that is so great that it makes sense, right? Even though we know some of the risks and that sort of thing. Um, but a lot of these girls are being put on it because of cramps or to regulate their cycles or because their skin is breaking out and they don't like that. Um, but what, you know, I, I, they don't know, like what the moms don't know and what, and what the daughters don't know is that, you know, there's almost no research out there yet um, showing what um, the effect of the birth control pill is on during the time when your brain is still developing on brain development. And, um, you know, when it comes to post-pubertal brain development, right? So everything that's going on from about, you know, 12 up until you're 20 is being totally coordinated by your sex hormones. So there's no way it'd be physically, biologically implausible that the birth control pill does not influence brain development when it's being taken during this time in your life. And there's some research now that suggests that um, being on the pill prior to age 19 
um, increases a person's risk of developing depression across their lifespan, even after they've gone off of the birth control pill. So it may be influencing brain development in a way that makes you permanently at an increased risk for depression. And there needs to be follow-up research on this. So, you know, we can't draw any conclusions. This was one study. It was, it was a really carefully and thoughtfully done study. Um, but it was one study, um, but there's very little known. There's very little known about this. And this is something that um, I think that if mothers knew it, that they would really you know, think twice about it, just like whether it makes sense in the context of things like clear skin and that yeah. sort of yeah, yeah. I think, you know, of course, hormones are going to fluctuate when you're going through period and, you know, going through puberty and you're having maybe some acne and cramps, but there are so many other ways to address those types of side effects and lower those side effects through food and activity and sleep and all kinds of things like that. And I know a lot of teenagers are on their phones and <laughs> there's a lot, you know, a lot of, yeah. I remember being a teenager, there's a lot of candy and there's a lot of, you know, not, <laughs> yeah, not so healthy food, but like, it is just, I for people listening, I know there are so many moms. It, this is this is not to make anyone scared. It's to make you educated so you can make a better choice and you aren't making a permanent change um, for your child and their future. Right. Yeah. I mean, the thing to just keep in mind is that you know this period of adolescence when um, you know girls um, are beginning, you know, are going through puberty and their skin's breaking out and their periods are heavy and then they they can't predict when their periods happening and it's you know really embarrassing like we have to like remember like this is actually the part where our brain is learning about our sex hormones right and the body the brain is like cuz the brain you know we tend to think of the brain as being this fixed thing but it's really not like it's it's really smart right and so the brain actually learns about a woman's own level of sex hormones right so if the brain releases so much precursor hormone that gets the ovary stimulated and then it gets overwhelmed with levels of estrogen because the egg follicles are just like wow, wow, and they're releasing so much estrogen, the brain will become less sensitive to estrogen because it's like, oh, okay, I've got, I've got egg, you know, things you know, that, that are really um, high producers of estrogen and the brain then fine tunes how sensitive it is to the signal. So during this time of adolescence, things are rocky. Our skin looks terrible, right? Um, our periods are too long or too short or too heavy or too light because our body's actually learning about what our own natural levels of hormones are. And it's not a pretty process, but we have to like remember that the goal of adolescence isn't to be an amazing, be- the most beautiful adolescent, right? <laughs> it's about like emerging into, uh, into an adult, you know, and and having all that working the way that it's supposed to, like once you're, I'm actually ready to start having babies. And so, if you allow that period to happen and sort of communicate with your daughter, this is what I've been trying to do with my daughter because she gets cramps and the whole thing, and um, and it's like you know, your body is learning about yourself right now, right? Your body's trying to understand its own levels of hormones. This is temporary. Like, do this now, pay this cost now, and then for the rest of your life your brain's going to have it all figured out. You're going to be like a well-oiled machine because all of your sex hormone receptors are going to know just what your own personal levels are like, right? You're going to be like really... But if we kind of keep our eyes on the prize and like understand like, like my brain is learning about myself right now. And yeah, I look a little bit crappy, but it's, you know, it's like, I'm going to figure that out. My body's going to figure it out. Like we don't want to peak in adolescence anyway. You know? No. Um, 
And it, yes. we all need those like awkward teenage years. You know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So like trying to kind of keep all of that stuff into perspective. And, you know, and again, with all of this, the, um, the birth control pill in some cases is still the best choice, you know, and I've had this conversation um, with so many women because, you know, my daughter is 13 and she does not have a boyfriend and she's not sexually active. And at some point in her adolescence, you know, there's a possibility that she will be. And if she is sexually active and, um, you know, and not somebody who's going to be able to use the fertility awareness method or like, let's say that she doesn't respond well to the copper IUD, which is the non-hormonal one. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a chance that that I would recommend for her the birth control pill, a really good chance because it, it works. You know, right. it's very effective. And, um, and the benefits of not getting pregnant when you don't want to are just so high that they outweigh almost any one of the costs, you know, that I could potentially think of when it comes to the birth control pill because it's like so important in terms of women's ability to become, you know, financially independent and, um, you know, meet their long-term educational goals. And so um, it's not that the pill is, you know, terrible and don't do it and whatever. It's just, especially when it comes to these young girls, is like, we just don't, you know, there's not enough research out there yet to understand all of the ways that it influences brain development, but there's no way it doesn't. I mean, there's just, you know, but whether or not those, those changes are meaningful or actually mean something in terms of the way that women experience the world, we don't, we don't yet know that. And it's just something to keep in mind as we're sort of weighing, you know, the costs and the benefits of, of you know, each individual woman's a choice for herself or, or for her daughter. Definitely. I think there are specific times in life when you, if you can avoid messing with nature to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I've heard you talk about and you noted in your book that it, that birth control also has a changes who you're physically attracted to, Mm -hmm. um, which is a little bit scary because a lot of times people are on birth control around the time when they would meet the person that they may marry and spend the rest of their life with. What happens when those women get off the pill in those relationships? Yeah, that's so interesting. So, um, you know, just to give a little bit of context to the listeners, like um, there's been research now for the past 20 or so years um, showing that um, estrogen, you know, that, that hormone, that sex kitten hormone, um, actually, you know, it does increase our attunement to men. Um, and it increases our sort of attunement to men who might be genetically compatible to us um, and to uh, men who have cues associated with like what we call like good genes. Um, And so these are men who are like healthy. Um, They generally have relatively higher levels of testosterone compared to um, to men who are less healthy. Um, And so women, when estrogen is high, tend to be attuned to cues of genetic compatibility, which are generally um, things that uh, are apparent to us through scent. So we tend to be able to pick up on like the the scent of men that we like are generally men who have um, who are genetically compatible with us when it comes to their immune genes, um, which is reasoned. It's 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 hypothesized that this is um, then linked to better health of children that are produced by those um, by those pairs. Um, but so estrogen is associated with yeah attunement to cues of genetic compatibility, attunement to testosterone or like cues of sort of um, sexiness and that sort of thing. 
Um, and you know, again, the reason that estrogen is linked with these types of attunements is because this is a time in your cycle when conception is possible. And so your brain is like zeroing in on, you know, how am I going to find the best partner to fertilize this egg that's about to be released? And so um, when you don't experience that on the birth control pill, right? And you're sort of like, it's, it's just almost like you're um, wearing fuzzy glasses, right? You can still see, right? So it's not like you're like totally blind and you're like picking a partner in the dark with your eyes closed, but instead you're wearing fuzzy glasses, right? Where you can't quite see things quite as clearly as you would if you took off the fuzzy glasses. And then you'd know better, like, is this actually somebody who has these qualities that you know evolutionarily I've been programmed to want to pick up on in terms of choosing the father for my offspring. And so what this um, research finds you know, is that um, when you are on the birth control pill, that it does seem to decrease attunement to things like testosterone-related cues. So we know from research, for example, that women who are on the birth control pill um, actually prefer less masculine male faces compared to women who are off of it, naturally cycling women. And again, it's, it seems that um, women who are on the pill, they just have on the fuzzy glasses. It's like they're just not even really picking up on these cues of masculinity, facial masculinity, which is something that naturally cycling women tend to be able to pick up on and they like it. And they've actually done studies where they've um, taken photo, like photographs of um, women's partners um, and then divided them into two stacks, right? Stacks of partners that were chosen by women who were naturally cycling, and then a stack of partners who were chosen by women who were on the pill. And then they had them evaluated for facial masculinity by a group of people who didn't know, you know, who belonged to what group. And the the partners that are actually chosen by women who are on the pill are less masculine um, than the partners chosen by women who are naturally cycling. And so, you know, your question then is, well. Wait a minute, <laughs> you know, people don't stay on the pill forever. So what happens then if you go off of the birth control pill? And um, and there is um, research now that uh, shows that um, if women chose their partners when they're on the pill and then they go off the birth control pill, um, it does seem to change how attracted they are to their partner. But here's the kicker, and this is the part where it gets really interesting. Um, so uh, going, like, women who choose their partners when they're on the pill. Now they go off of the pill. Um, it changes how attracted they are to their partner and their sexual attraction and how much sexual desire they have in the relationship. But whether it increases or decreases depends on how sexy their partner is. And so what they find is that women who are partnered to somebody who has all of these cues, right? So it's like they, they had on their fuzzy glasses, but they, they accidentally chose men who had these qualities. They're actually, you know, they go off the pill and they're all of a sudden like, more attracted to their partner, more sex, their, their sex life is better. Everything is, you know, better than it was before. But for women who take their fuzzy glasses off and their partner does not have these qualities, they're less attracted to their partner, less satisfied with their relationship and having less sex after going off the birth control pill than they did when they were on it. Wow. I mean, that's a, that's a powerful bit of yeah. information based on like what your future plans are. Right. Yeah. I mean, and so here's the thing to, here's the thing to note, because if like women are like, holy shit, yeah. <laughs> like, what do I do oh, with God. that? Yeah. What do I do with that? Is, um, you know, some, there's also women who, who experience little effects, like, right. They, they get these, like, they find these differences, right. But we don't, there's also some women who are, were on the pill and they chose their partner, they go off the pill and they're like, 
I, this is exactly, this feels like Groundhog Day. Like I yeah. think this feels exactly the same as it did before. Right. Um, and unfortunately, you know, the unfortunate thing is, is that the science isn't yet in a place where we can make really good predictions about who's going to respond what way to what pill and what partner, you know, and all of this, like we can't make good predictions where we can say like, Sally, you chose your boyfriend while on ortho novum. And so that's going to be bad news, you know, yeah. bad news for you. Um, but you know, we know, we do know that it's possible for women to experience changes um, in how they feel about their partner and the quality of their sex life, and just even just yeah, their attraction to their partner and the relationship um, when they transition from being on the pill to off of it. Um, so that is a very real thing that can happen to some women that's not at all prescriptive or diagnostic. And so yeah. it's like not going to happen for everyone. And the way that it happens is going to be a little bit different for everyone if it does. And like, you know, the research showed that for some women, it actually ended up being a huge positive. Like they went off of it and they were like, oh my goodness. Like, yeah, I didn't realize amazing. like how did, yeah, just like to accidentally like sort of somersault your way into a relationship with somebody who just happens to have all these qualities that you would want is amazing. Um, and then for other women, you know, it can mean something different. Um, and so for women who are on the pill and they chose their partners, you know, don't fret. Every woman's experience is very different. And that's like one thing that's very clear from all of the research is that there's no such thing as a one-size-fits-all birth control pill strategy. And there's no such thing as a one-size-fits-all response to any individual pill, right? And so one, a woman and her best friend could be on the exact same formula of the birth control pill and have radically different experiences. And, um, and this is just because, you know, each woman has her own levels of um, pre-birth control hormones. They, they have different numbers of receptors for different hormones in their bodies. Our bodies metabolize hormones differently. I mean, there's a million different things that influence the different pathways in terms of the way that they affect us. So um, yeah, so sort of understanding what can happen, I think can be a really powerful position um, for women. So they do experience something like changing how they feel um, about their partner if they go off of the birth control pill. Um, but it's certainly not something where it's like going to be um, necessarily describing what's going to happen for every single woman. Not, not to like give everyone out there a plan, but I think you know maybe you can hold off on sex for a little bit, meet your partner, be very attracted mm -hmm. to them and be like, okay, I don't want a baby. Let's get yeah. on the birth control well, pill right. and then get off when I feel comfortable or plan a certain... I mean, I think there's you could sort of have a, a little bit of a strategy there just to make sure that you're yeah you are no, age, picking the right way <laughs> yeah no totally like in in, in the book you know I, t I talk about that is like all of this information is is something that you can use to strategize your plan and you know and I think a really good plan is um, is not being on it when you're not sexually active right and so if you're not in a relationship um, and you aren't if you're not sexually active and you're actually looking for a long-term partner, um, then yeah, um, let your naturally cycling hormones help you with your mate choice, right? Because we have evolved, like we've inherited this like, you know, beautiful wisdom of our female ancestors and our sex hormones sort of guide us. They help play a role in guiding us toward partners um, who are going to be genetically compatible and have these like kinds of cues that um, historically would have helped to promote successful reproduction. 
Um, and then when we're with them, then yeah, then go on the birth control pill and um, as a means of pregnancy prevention. Um, and so I think that, yeah, that, that you can certainly use this information to strategize your, um, your mating decisions. And then when you want to have a baby, get off and have so much fun. Yeah, exactly. And have so much fun. And you'll be like, oh my gosh, there you are. I missed you. I had on my fuzzy glasses. All right, right. I love it. You know, we've talked a lot about female sex hormones and we're just sort of starting to touch on men's sex hormones, but um, how do their sex hormones change? Yeah. So, you know, it's so funny because women, we sometimes get labeled as being, you know, capricious and fickle because our sex hormones change, right? We talked about what happens with estrogen and then progesterone levels across the cycle. Um, And so, you know, historically um, people would say, oh, women are so hormonal and moody because their hormones are changing and blah, 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 blah. Um, and the whole idea behind all that is is completely ridiculous because um, you know men also have sex hormones and men's sex hormones also change, right? And so um, you know men's primary sex hormone is testosterone, um, which women also have too, by the way. Like, and it's an, it's important for us too, um, but it's just men have so much more of it and it's their primary sex hormone. And testosterone, unlike estrogen and progesterone, which change in very predictable cyclical ways, right? Like if you tell me a woman's age in the first day of her last menstrual cycle, I can make a really good prediction about what her sex hormones are doing right at that moment. Like if you tell me, I can say, yep, your estrogen levels are probably right about here and your progesterone levels are probably right about here. Um, with men, like with testosterone, testosterone is a totally different animal. So it changes like not cyclically and in a very predictable way, like women's sex hormones. It changes completely erratically um, in a lot of ways. And, and, and there's some cyclicity, right? So we know that men's sex hormones are, are relatively high in the morning um, compared to later on in the day, right? And this is why um, if you've ever like laid you know bed with your romantic partner in the morning, you know that testosterone levels are relatively high because um, that is a big peak for men. They have this circadian rhythmicity where testosterone is very high in the morning and it sort of decreases through the day. Um, but men's testosterone levels also change dramatically throughout the day in response to the environment. So, for example, there's research showing that men's testosterone levels increase dramatically. Um, in response to the sight of a beautiful woman, right? They they respond after a competitive victory. They respond after their sports team wins. Their <laughs> testosterone levels decrease if their sports team loses. If their favorite political candidate wins, their testosterone goes up, right? If they see a gun, their testosterone levels go up. And right, so men's testosterone levels fluctuate wildly, you know, in addition to having circadian rhythmicity where they change, they have a daily cycle instead of a monthly cycle like women's hormones. Um, in addition to having this daily cycle, they also change in response to all these different types of cues. Like you see a gun, you see a beautiful woman, you win something, you lose something. Um, they go down when men get married, testosterone levels decrease. When men have children, testosterone levels decrease even further, right? And all of this stuff, you know, men's sex hormones are much more capricious and whimsical than women's. Um, and so the idea that, you know, we're somehow fickle because our sex hormones change and influence our brain, but men aren't, is like absolutely false. It's like patently false. 
And um, and the thing for both of us, you know, because we can laugh at men, and it's always fun to laugh at men. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just thinking about all the ways I, I can in, like influence Chris's sex hormones without him knowing about it. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. No, totally. Like have him read to your your kiddo. Like have him read books. Any sort of fathering activity actually decreases testosterone levels, and it's really smart. And it's you know when you think about it, because it sounds like because there, there's this weird cultural thing, right, where everybody thinks that your foot should be on the gas pedal of testosterone all the time and that, well, your testosterone levels are decreasing. That's terrible. But no, it's, it's so smart. Like what it is, it's like men have inherited, you know, again, you know, sort of we take the evolutionary view of all of this, you know, fathering and caring for young children um, is such an important part of, of who men are. You know, as a species, we're unique in just how much men invest in children. And it's because um, our children require so much investment that their survival depends on having multiple people investing in them. And so what's happening when men are caring for children and their testosterone levels going down is that they're actually making a trade-off. They're like, okay, I'm not going to be as attuned to the sexy next door neighbor or the fact that, you know, it might be fun to get into a fight, you know, because yeah. I'm caring for this baby right now. Um, and so it's like, basically, you know, they're taking their foot off the gas of the sort of mating effort pedal, right? And instead investing in fathering. And so it's like this really beautiful thing that happens that that men's bodies do this. It's like they're wired for childcare, just in the same way that we're wired for childcare. And that it um sort of, you know, temporarily like testosterone goes down in response to to caring for children. It's like it's a good thing. So yeah, have them hold your baby. Yeah. This <laughs> is Chris is a, a full on dad. We definitely like he is he's super supportive and like spends a lot of days all day with Sebastian and he they're very close but it's it's awesome. good to know for like women postpartum too because not only are you dealing with your postpartum body and you're like mm-hmm. am i sexy what's going on with my body right now i'm just a cow if you're breastfeeding yeah. you know <laughs> yes. oh my just gosh to yes. even know that like your husband pre-marriage is going to be different than your husband just married is going to be different than your husband as a father and your expectations for them. It's probably not about you not being sexy or um, having your best body that maybe they are like full on just being a dad with lower testosterone levels. And it's probably good that they're not like diddling the neighbor. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. So if you feel like, why is my husband not noticing me as a sexual object. Is it because I have this breast pump on? Yeah. <laughs> like, is it because I look like a milky machine or whatever? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, that's really interesting. I hadn't thought about it, but no, that's really, that's so true, right? It's like, take that into context, you know, that that your spouse is having or your um, the father of your child is having these like biological experiences that are, you know, shifting their effort toward the child too. And that has nothing to do with you and your sort of, you know, the fact that you're a hot mess postpartum, yeah. which, you know, we all kind of are. Right. What are, what are some of the sex hormones that are happening when women are breastfeeding? And how is that affecting our brains and our sex drives? Oh, that's so interesting. So, um, so like breastfeeding causes a release of oxytocin, which is this bonding, um, this bonding hormone. And it plays a really important role in terms of our brain sort of flagging somebody as being really important. And this is why it's considered the bonding hormone, right? Is that um, like when oxytocin is released um, in, you know, in response to your romantic partner or your baby, it's like your brain is like, 
this person is one of my people. This is one of my people. And like when we're dealing with our people, it's, um, you know, that's like, that's like somebody that we protect and care for. And it creates a bond. It creates that feeling of, of us and togetherness and, and love. And, um, and there's research with the birth control pill, like just to kind of circle back to the pill. But then there's like some also some really interesting other things related to oxytocin and, and nursing with, um, with, uh, sex hormones. That's kind of interesting that we can circle back to too. But with um with the pill and oxytocin, there's there's research showing that um women who are on the birth control pill um seem to have disruptions in their oxytocin signaling system. Um, and they were able to evidence this, uh, provide evidence for this um, by giving women who are naturally cycling or uh, on the birth control pill um, intranasal oxytocin. So you actually shoot up women with oxytocin instead of allowing it to be naturally produced just to make sure that everybody's experiencing oxytocin. Um, so they give everybody a dose of intranasal oxytocin and then they show people photographs of complete strangers, attractive strangers, um, or um, their romantic partner. Right, and they look at these. They look at a photograph of a stranger of an attractive member of the opposite sex. A picture of their romantic partner. And normally, what happens when oxytocin is on the scene, right? So, when oxytocin is there, if it's been delivered intranasally or occur, occurring naturally, um, what happens if we're looking at a like looking at our romantic partner is um, the the reward pathways in our brain light up like a Christmas tree, right? Because it's like you're my person. Right. And so that makes us feel all of these like positive reinforcing psychological experiences. Um, and that's what they found with the naturally cycling women. It's like you're looking at a stranger, your brain is kind of quiet. You're looking at the face of an attractive stranger, your brain is a little louder, but it's, it's still pretty quiet. It's still, there's very little, little activity, but there's a little bit more than there is at just a complete unattractive stranger. Then when you're looking at your romantic partner, it's just like, Boom! Fireworks! Like you know, it's it's like your brain is like, I like that person. That's my person. You know, we love this person. Um, when they did this with the women on the pill, and they you know showed them the stranger, showed them the attractive stranger, showed them their romantic partner, their brain looked the same in all three contexts. Oh my god! And that's so, so sad. Well, it is sad. And so it suggests that there's problems with the signaling because you know the, they, they gave them intranasal oxytocin. So the, the oxytocin, even if it's there, the signal's not being transduced for some reason for women on the birth control pill. Um, and, and, and this is only one study that's been done on this. And this is like, again, this is like crazy because there's so little research and this stuff is so important. And I think that all of your listeners um, and you and I, I know I share this in comments, like this is way too important. Like this is so important. Why do we know more about this? It's like one study that's been done on this. We need to know more about this um, because this is like potentially hugely important, not only in the context of what this means in terms of our ability to bond with our romantic partners, but to go back to the postpartum issue, you know, how many women have had the experience of delivering a baby and then um, their doctor is like getting, trying to get them right back on the birth control pill? Um, I know I had this experience. So I, I breastfed both my kiddos, but even with that, because they're like, you know, that's not perfect birth yeah. control. And I'm like, no, I think, I think I'm good. But they were trying to get me on the progestin only pill, um, which has these same effects, by the way, um, as does the hormonal IUD. So don't let your doctor tell you anything different than that. Um, 
but uh, they, they try to get you on the birth control pill right away. And so imagine you have this baby that you're trying to bond with and you're on the birth control pill and you're not getting signaling, the appropriate signaling from oxytocin. I mean, I have absolutely no doubt in my mind, zero doubts that this disruption isn't playing at least some contributing role to the increased prevalence in postpartum depression that we see, that we've seen recently. You know, I think part of it is that, you know, women, a lot of us are having to go back to work, like at times where, and that that feels really hard and challenging. And I think that that contributes to it as well. But I think that one of the big drivers is I think that women are getting put on the birth control pill too soon. It's disrupting their oxytocin signaling, and then they're not experiencing that bonding effect, right? And that bonding effect is so necessary. And that's one of the symptoms of um, postpartum depression is that you're not feeling connected to your baby. And, and that's scary. I can only imagine how scary that is because it's like, I mean, I don't know about you, but especially with my first child, I remember there was a time, it was probably my daughter must have been like two months old. And I remember she was crying all day and she's sitting in her bouncy chair. And I remember thinking, you know, if somebody just walked in here and took her, yeah. <laughs> I think I'd be okay with this. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's hard. I mean, having newborns and having newborns is so hard. And the idea of trying to manage that without feeling that intense, you know, feeling that we get from oxytocin signaling is really scary and sad. And um, it's something that we need a lot more research on. Um, and so, yeah, I guess, you know, it's, it's, it's one of these things where, again, like knowing this information, if you're a woman who is experiencing this pattern, you know, talking to your doctor about maybe trying something else for, for you know, contraception, like the copper non-hormonal IUD or something else um, might be a, you know, a good idea because how many women, you know, are not only are they going through postpartum depression, which is a very real experience that they can't just snap out of, um, but they blame themselves because one of these symptoms is that they're not bonding with their baby and to beat themselves up about not bonding with their baby when it might be that the actual biological architecture that promotes bonding isn't working. Yeah. And to, and to feel responsible for that. I mean, it's terrible for women. It's, it's terrible. so horrible. It's so yeah. horrible. I remember... Um, you probably don't know our, our birth story, but we had a really traumatic birth story where my son was transferred to a level four NICU across towns, Children's oh, Hospital, wow. Los Angeles. He is since like a healthy, thriving, yeah. like crazy maniac. But um, but I remember having so much fear about bonding because I had to stay at St. John's at night by myself. They were like having me like hand express to like bring my milk in, telling me my milk might not come in, like all of these like heavy emotional things. And then when I was able to breastfeed, starting to like feel that bonding and like not be as scared that like I wasn't falling in love with my son and wasn't bonded with my son. I mean, I ended up breastfeeding him for a year and a half um, and just like had a really, he was fine giving it up. I wasn't, you know, but I yeah. definitely felt like that bonding increased and increased and increased over the time of, of breastfeeding him based on like that constant release of oxytocin and that bonding mm -hmm. that we were able to have together. So I can only imagine having your like, like your wiring not work, what that right. must feel like. Right. And even for women who aren't breastfeeding, because I'm just seeing your baby, I'm seeing the face of people that we love, um, also causes the release of oxytocin. And so that also like, can, so it's like, it could be disruptive. Um, 
to anyone, right. you know, to, to not have this experience. And so, um, wow. yeah, it's, uh, it's, it, that's scary. And it's, it's something that, um, yeah, I, I think that women need to have some awareness of as they're making their decisions about how to handle um, contraception after having babies. Totally. So if you guys don't know, Miss Sarah Hill, Dr. Sarah Hill has not only invested her research time into birth control and its effects on the brain, but she goes into inflammation and how it affects our behavior, how childhood socioeconomic status may promote, you know, sort of like eating without a real hunger or need to eat, and even the effects of non-caloric sweeteners on cognition, choice, and post-consumption satisfaction, which I'm obsessed with satiety. I want to know how do we get there so that we don't graze on all the food. So those were the three that really stood out to me. But I mean, just even on your references on your website and um, you know, searching your name on PubMed, I was like, whoa, this is a wild, wild west. We could go every <laughs> direction. But I think those really stood out to me um, because they they have a, a lot to do with with how our food behaviors are, you know, right. how we're eating and, and our behaviors around food. So um, right. I'll let you pick a topic and go. Oh my gosh. Yeah. No, so many. Yeah. It's so funny because my, my research is like mostly it's like sex and relationships and food. <laughs> like my two things that I like care the most about. Well, we'll um, have to have you back for like a food only, but let's give yes. people some teasers. Yeah. We can give them some teasers. So we'll start just by talking, um, you know, about, about in- inflammation, um, because I think that this one's really interesting and inflammation is kind of a hot topic that, you know, there's a lot of interest in and, um, you know, inflammatory activity is what happens when your body is experiencing an immunological response. Um, and so, like right now, every I think the average levels of inflammation in the U.S. are probably higher than they would be normally, just because of COVID. Um, people, our immune system actually like is tuned in with our brain in like all of these really crazy, amazingly cool ways. Where if we see a photograph of somebody vomiting, for example, our um, our immune system starts releasing. Um, uh, inflammation as a way to protect ourselves. Like it's like, oh, there's a cue to a pathogen or sickness or whatever, and it starts already mounting an immune response. It's, it's really smart. And so, um, inflammatory activity is something that occurs as part of the you know the body's natural healing process and that sort of thing. But it also gets released um, in you know in response to things like like eating crappy food. And um, if you have too much body fat, that's also um, body fat is pro-inflammatory and it um, it releases um, inflammatory activity in the body. And um, having acute inflammation, so like uh, I get a cut and then I experience inflammation, that helps healing. Like that's a good, but chronic inflammation is bad. It's just like stress, you know, like a little bit of stress is uh, good, but chronic stress is bad. And chronic inflammatory activity is linked with all kinds of health problems. We know it's linked with cancer, it's linked with heart disease, um, and so on and so on and so on. And so um, inflammatory activity in the body generally kind of bad um, as a chronic state. And um, we were really interested in how um, inflammatory activity might influence decision-making and whether it might actually decrease impulse control. Right, which is relevant to eating, but it's also relevant to other things like risky sexual behavior, smoking, drinking, gambling, you know, any sort of thing that like where it's something that'd be really fun to do in the moment, but it's probably a bad idea. And so um, we had predicted that um, inflammation um, would actually decrease impulse control, so make you more impulsive and more willing or more likely to do things like overeat or do some of these other things um, it, that are that that it would decrease that um, because uh, 
inflammatory activity actually um, is like sort of a, a costly activity. So um, when you're experiencing inflammation, it um, is uh, metabolically costly to experience. And you know when you think about that, um, you know something being metabolically costly in the context of our current environment doesn't sound like a big deal because there's a you know Taco Bell in every corner, and so like we have enough energy to be able to do things without having to worry about where we're going to get the energy to do it. But historically, you know, for most of our evolutionary history, we lived in environments where resources were relatively scarce. Um, and we had to make, you know, we had to be really careful with how we were investing our limited calories, right? And so any sort of an immune response or inflammatory activity, because it is really costly, um, would then sort of decrease our ability to spend energy on other things. And so um, we predicted that inflammatory activity in the body would decrease impulse control because impulse control is actually really costly. It's like, it's hard to do. It's, it's um, cognitively ta- ta- taxing. I can never mm-hmm. say that word right, taxing. <laughs> yeah. um, and, it, um, and the idea of not wanting something now instead of getting something later doesn't make a lot of adaptive sense in the context when your energy needs are relatively high. And so we d- we've done several studies now. Inflammatory activity actually does decrease impulse control. It makes you more impulsive. Um, and what's sort of interesting and, and also sort of scary about this is that um, you know the things that we tend to do when we're feeling impulsive, like eating a bunch of junk food or smoking or drinking or whatever, those activities themselves promote inflammation. Because like eating too much sugar, yeah, eating too much sugar, for example, is very inflammatory. I mean, if that's then decreasing our impulse control and then we're eating more sugar and then we're more impulsive, yeah, it causes this um, feed forward cycle um, that can be really hard to break out of. And so um, that's some of the, uh, that's one of the ways that, you know, we know that our biological systems can influence our, um, our consumptive behavior. It's so, um, and, it, it, sorry, it's so interesting because even working with clients when they start to eat clean, like maybe they've been mm-hmm. binging or they've been eating poorly. And then there's this really hard transition period of like moving them into like really cleaning up their diet and eating cleaner. And then mm-hmm. when they eat cleaner, it's easier to eat cleaner. It's yes. easier to like prevent those, those impulsive behaviors and that binge eating. And it's scary for them to think like, well, when I do that, then I'm going to be pulled back into that cycle, that feed forward cycle, right? Um, yes. Wow. It's powerful to know that it's like proving itself in research. Yeah, no, definitely. And, it, and there's definitely something there. And there's also this idea that's out there that's been, um, that there it's, it, it hasn't been empirically tested, but it's like sort of been proposed and biologically is very plausible. And that's also that, um, you know, when you start to eat certain foods, like, you know, like if you're eating a bunch of sugar and that sort of thing or whatever, or on the flip side, if you're eating clean, which, um, you know, cause I'm, I'm a real, I'm a real clean eater myself, and um, and I, and I know exactly this thing, right? Where it's like, um, like I crave now like vegetables, like like that's like what I want is like I really need some Brussels sprouts, yeah, <laughs> right now, yeah. Um, and and how then, much easier is it for you to eat that way when you crave I it? No, I know, I know, and it and it takes a while. And so there's this other research out there. This isn't my research, but it's a colleague of mine's looking at the microbiome and whether or not the are you know because the food you eat of course influences the composition of your microbiome 
And the idea is that your microbiome, because um, a lot of the um, things that our brain uses to signal are created in the gut, the idea is that the microbes from our food might actually be manipulating our brain to crave foods that will feed more of themselves. So that way they can make more copies of themselves, right? So if you've got like, you know, these microbes that get created in the context of sugar, they're telling your brain, eat more sugar. So that way they get more sugar. So that way they can reproduce and replicate and replicate and replicate. Isn't that wild? We're just an ecosystem. We're just, we're just uh, following their lead. Yeah, I know. It's crazy. And so, but it, it makes like, to me, I'm like, yeah, no, that makes total sense. Especially when I think about like, um, because for me, you know, again, it's like I, if I don't, um, because I, I've been eating clean now for so long, if I don't have, um, yeah, like my, you know, carrots or bell peppers or all of the different things, that, like, I feel like I just really need a vegetable. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I a vegetable. I know so. exactly what you're feeling. Yeah. Oh, well, let's talk a little bit about, um, like, for eating and and how that can start in childhood. Yeah, so I um, some of uh, some of the research that I have been really focusing in on the last um, several years has been looking at the role of a person's early life environments on their eating behavior in adulthood. And so this research is grounded in um, there's some of this research on what they call like phenotypic programming, and it's just this idea that when individ- like when people are growing up, their home environments that they're in when they're kids have a really profound role in shaping how they respond to things in adulthood. And so, you know, if you grow up in a really safe and stable and predictable home, um, that you sort of embed those types of, you know, schemas and maps of the world in your body. And then you develop in ways that help you, you know, sort of be matched to that type of an environment in adulthood. On the flip side, if you grow up in a resource scarce environment, so if you grow up poor, if things are chaotic, um, and that sort of thing that then you develop in ways where you're fine-tuned to survive in those types of environments. It's just this idea that our early life environments have a lasting legacy on how we respond to the world in adulthood. And there's been you know decades of research showing that this is the the case. And I could you know go on and on about that. Um, we were really interested in that as it um, as it relates to metabolic processes because um, again I'm really interested in food. And so we were. Um, yeah, we're gonna do a part two. We're yeah, yeah. Like two. I'm like so. I'm so into food. So into food. Um, and so we were really interested in you know how does a person's early environment influence the way that they regulate food? Because um, you know again, if we think about this idea that we're learning from our early life environments, what our life is going to be like, and what the environments that we're going to encounter in adulthood are going to be like. Um, you know, we should expect that if we're growing up in environments that are resource scarce, so if you grow up poor, if you grow up in contexts where um, you don't get reliably taken care of by your parents, like you don't really know what's coming next, things feel very unpredictable. Those types of environments um, should, rather than promoting what, what we call like homeostatic energy regulation, which is the the types of things that I'm sure that you um, promote to your clients. And it's like what we all strive for, which is the thing where we're really attuned to what our body needs. We listen to it. And then we eat when we're hungry. And then we stop eating when we start to feel full. 
Um, and that's homeostasis right there. That's your body sort of maintaining the energy need, you know, like it's basically taking in what it needs and then not anything else. Um, and then sort of moving on, knowing that, you know, later on when the body needs more energy, that it'll be able to get it because, you know, you're in a nice, predictable environment. Resources are available. Whenever you need to eat, you can. Um, for kids who grow up poor, though, um, if you're growing up in an environment where sometimes you're hungry and there's no food, and other times, you know, there's food and you're not hungry, but you need to eat because later on, there's not going to be food when you are. Um, or, you know, you don't know if your parent is going to be home or you don't know who's going to be there after school. And if you need to eat, will you be able to? If you're growing up in that type of environment, it doesn't make sense to really tune into what's going on internally in your body in terms of regulating your food intake. Instead, it makes more sense to just eat based on availability of food rather than your internal cues. And so we proposed in our research that if you grow up in environments that are unpredictable or um, just you know poor in terms of lack of socioeconomic resources or lack of money, um, that kids who grow up in these types of environments should not be in tune with their internal signals. Instead, they should have learned to override those signals, ignore them completely, and just eat based on food availability because that's what would promote survival in those types of environments. Right? Because you know, calories can get stored on our body in the terms of fat, mm-hmm. right? in, the, in, in, in the way of fat. And so um, if you're in an environment where you might eat today, but then you might not eat two days after, or you'll eat for this meal, but then you won't be eating again for another 24 hours. Um, in those environments, you should just eat when food is there, um, regardless of your internal energy need. And that would be the strategy that would promote survival in those environments. And so, you know, sort of using this as our framework, um, we looked at college students who are all in a nice, safe, predictable environment now um, and where they have access to food. Um, and we looked at whether or not um, people's eating behavior is, is influenced by their, their types of environments that they were in when they were kids. And what we find is that um, adults who grew up in unpredictable homes or homes where they were lacking financial resources... Um, you know, rather than eating according to what their body's energy needs were. And we measured this a couple of different ways. We've measured it just by asking how hungry they are. We've measured it by asking how long it's been since they've last eaten something. We've done it by bringing people into the lab when they're fasting and then giving half of them some calories and the other half of them not. Um, but what we find is that the kids who grow up poor, um, they'll eat when food is available, regardless of their energy need. Um, whereas the the um, adults who uh, grow up in more middle class environments or stable environments, they're really sensitive um, to what their body's energy needs actually are, and they're eating um, according to them. And so, um, basically, what we've shown, and now we've shown this now in kids as young as three, that we get this, um, we get really different patterns of food intake based on. Um, but based on socioeconomic conditions and that kids who grow up poor starting at age three are already eating in the absence of hunger. Um, and then once you, once they're adults, even if they're, you know, in really nice cushy environments, they're still eating in the absence of hunger. It's like they still have this, you know, and we call it energy dysregulation. You still get dysregulation in the context of those 
you know, even those who are really successful adults, they have a hard time listening to their internal bodily cues because they learned to override them when they were little, because that was the sort of survival strategy that their body like became ingrained in their body. And I think this is really important, you know, it's important information to understand for a bunch of different reasons. But um, especially, you know, for people who have a really hard time with regulating their food intake and are trying to learn to eat more intuitively. You know, I think it's about like rebuilding the roadmap and trying to like really learn to to listen to your body because for so long, like they spent so much time trying to override those signals and just eating when you know and having that sort of scarcity mentality where you know things are you know you have to eat it now or it might go away or you know um, and trying to um, understand yourself and what you're going through when you're dealing with food, I think can be really powerful in terms of allowing you to overcome it and then sort of um, exhibit the desired behavioral change. Yeah, I think having a little compassion and grace with yourself if you grew up uh, under financial distress and with limited resources to just be aware that this is even a thing instead of feeling yeah. like you're a failure and you have an inability to control your eating behavior. Just being being aware of that kind of stuff can be really powerful for people to even start to make change. Yeah. And what's, what's really interesting that we found in our research with this effect is it's not just people who are objectively poor, but just feeling poor feeling like things are unpredictable, feeling that things are scarce, even if they objectively weren't, um, influences the way that we develop. And it just wow. goes to show you perception is reality. Wow. And um, yeah, and so even for people who are like, well, you know, we were middle class. It's, um, but yeah, like we were middle class, but I always felt deprived. Like I felt deprived and in, in anxiety around the idea of being taken care of, or I felt anxiety around financial resources or food resources. Because sometimes people will have parents who basically create a context of food insecurity, even though they're wealthy, because parents are so restrictive with their kids eating. And so, you know, there's all kinds of ways that this can um, influence a person's uh, energy regulation patterns in adulthood. And I think that understanding those patterns is sort of understanding like what you're you know that that a person's early environment does influence the way that they regulate their food um, in adulthood um, is really yeah is like really powerful with in terms of self compassion and then also just sort of understanding like um, you know there's a lot of work that needs to get done in order to develop healthy relationships for food and it's not just a matter of like oh I have self bad self control. Right. I have no willpower. I suck. It's like, no, like you have a, like, there was a lot of complicated relationships that went on when you were younger that you have to try to work in the context of. And like, let's try to address those things. There's a bigger picture here than right. just like you, you know, really like Doritos or like you suck around Doritos. It's like, no, there's a lot happening here. And yeah, having compassion and understanding and then being able to actually get at the root of the problem, I think is really helpful. It's so helpful. And even just with, what you just said, I'm thinking about even as a parent, like making sure that Bash feels like the food that we have is abundant and that if he's hungry, he can always eat and just really focusing on the most nutrient-dense nourishing foods and having those available for him and offering those as often as I can, which has always been a priority for me. But just like hearing that, because I do have clients that I worked with personally and then I'm we end up talking about their children and their, you know, their high schoolers or their junior high kids or even their young kids at any kind of like 
eating preferences or disorders or things of that nature. And it's, you know, just another thing that us parents need to worry about. But, yeah, but I know. there are there are like active ways to, I think, to use that research in a really positive way um, for your children. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. I have the same because my 13-year-old daughter is, um, you know, because of the messages that girls always get starting so young is always like, you know, do I, am I too bad? Am I too skinny? Am I, and I'm just like, why are you talking? Like, don't talk about these things. And like, and like, let's talk about health and let's talk about food for nourishment. And let's talk about how you feel. How do you feel when it was so yeah. funny because I she was at a thing for band and um, she's like, I ate a whole pizza at that. And I was like trying to have this like reflective moment with her because yeah. like I'm a book clean eater and that's that's what they have to eat when they're at home. So I cook and whatever. And um, I said, well, how does your body feel? Like, how do you feel after eating, you know, the pizza? Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, all right, you feel amazing. That's great. I'm like, you know what? That's that's great. I think I'd probably feel amazing if I was 13 years old and ate a whole pizza too. <laughs> yeah. I I think that's great. Like let them be reflective because there are going to be days where they go to a sleepover and they eat too much candy and they come home emotional and they're crashing. Yeah. And then you can have those reflective yeah, conversations exactly. then too. You know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because we're always trying to be mindful. Like, like, well, how does your body feel? Like, like let's listen to our bodies. Like, how are we feeling right now? So yeah, it's good. It's really good. Yeah. Okay. We're gonna we're gonna end on one juicy little topic, and that's non-caloric sweeteners, because I think yes. people think things are free. Yeah. And no. they tell us that they're not. No, there's no such thing as a free lunch, um, sadly. So um, we were really interested in what happens with artificial sweeteners. And the reason we're interested in this is that our brain um, and, you know, and again, everything that I do is like really looking at just how like these links between the brain and the body. This is like my whole thing is like, you know, the brain is an organ in the body. Um, the way that we feel and experience the world and the way we act is influenced by what we eat and, you know, and, and our health and, and inflammation and hormones and the whole thing. And so that, that's my whole thing. And so um, I was really interested in um, non-caloric sweeteners because one thing that we know about our brain and our um, and our hunger and satiety hormones is that um, we become um, sort of conditioned to um, start digesting food just simply by tasting something. So if I give you a piece of candy, right, your brain, because it's so smart, um, is like, oh yeah, we're about to get a big sugar rush. And so your body starts releasing insulin and doing all of these things because it's preparing for sugar, right? And so that's actually, um, your body's already, your body's metabolizing sugar before the first droplet of sugar even hits your stomach. It's really cool. Um, but so I was really interested in this with um, non-caloric sweeteners because um, it's like, here you are, you're getting a, a, this taste signal that's like, ooh, sweet. Like um, we're about to have some sugar body. And then your body is like all geared up and like doing all the things and getting ready to metabolize all the sugar. And um, and then there's not any. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and so I was really interested in whether or not this mismatch of your body like gearing up for sugar and then like not having anything to do with it um, whether this actually creates a feeling of scarcity within the body, like is this like seen as like an energy crisis in the body, where then the body is like, 
oh boy, like there is something messed up happening here. And then whether that might like actually increase craving for and then intake of subsequent sugar. And so we did some experiments um, where we gave, we had people come into the research lab fasting. So everybody was, you know, hungry. Um, And then we gave them a diet drink or a regular drink or water. Um, And then we gave them some opportunities to, um, you know, we were just like interested in um, scarcity mentality. So just does like having um, artificial sweeteners like make you think about scarce resources? Does it make you think about high caloric foods? Does it make you actually choose high calorie food items if you're given choices of foods? Um, and that and that was exactly what we found. So we found that um, when you, people drink non-caloric sweeteners, um, they are quicker to respond to um, high calorie food items. So if you show them like words like cheeseburger or that sort of thing, like they recognize recognize them more quickly because like their brain is just like that. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. that. I want cheeseburger. You gave me Milkshake. fake food. You gave yeah. me fake food and now I want the really, really And now I want food. the real deal. And um and this was even what was really interesting about it, it was like even compared to water, because like in both contexts, you have no like your body's hungry, right? Because we have people come into the lab fasting. Like people who have water are still hungry, but they're not like having this urgent need for like high calorie food items the way that we find with the the non caloric sweetener drinkers. Um, they were like that, and then we did a in one of the studies we um, we gave them an opportunity to like take. Um, some like a, basically a, a prize at the end of the study, and what we found is the people who drank the diet drink they took candy, they took like M and M's, um, like at a much greater rate than they took the other things, which was like gum or a bottle of water, um, compared to the people who had the water, or the people who had the 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 regular drink, the the sugar drink, and so um, and then we also found that people who drank the diet drink then and then ate cookies because then we did a study where we gave people regular drink, water, or diet drink, and then we gave them cookies to eat. And we found is that um, those who drank the diet drink um, were less satisfied with the cookies that they ate. And so then they needed to eat more. And so, um, so it can have these like counterintuitive effects because it does this weird mismatch in the body and like sort of creates this like artificial energy crisis where the brain is like, feed me. You know, like, right. like feed me now because right. there's something very weird happening here, and um and and we need calories, and so um yeah, so this is something to be if you are somebody who uses um, non caloric sweeteners is definitely something to be aware of that it can change what your brain is you know paying most attention to, and it's also you know a call to potentially move into some less, um, you know, unnatural forms of um, nourishment. And, and, you know, I'm like so thrilled to see the rise in popularity of sparkling water um, because it's like, that's always kind of been my go-to spark, you know, sparkly beverage. And, and now I have so many more options Yeah, <laughs> because everybody else likes them too. It used to be, it was like my lime LaCroix was like, as, you know, sort of far out as it was going to get. Now it's like, there's watermelon, Topo Chico, and like yeah. things. So yeah. The sky's the limit for you now. It sure <laughs> is. And the whole world is coming up, Sarah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, 
it is pretty amazing because I have a couple questions. One, were you just using diet sodas and um, like aspartame and sweeteners like that? Or were mm-hmm. you using any like stevia or monk fruit or any of those mm-hmm. other alternative sweeteners? Yeah, no, I was only... We did ours um, using Sprite and diet Sprite and then spark, and then sparkling water. It was our water beverage. We wanted to be sparkly too. So that way it'd have the same feel. Okay. Um, and so, and I do believe that those use aspartame. Yeah. Okay. I'm I'm sure that like the mechanism of tasting sweet and having the release of di- like digestive enzymes and insulin and all, hormonal things and all of that are it's all pretty much there. Um, yeah. And I have seen in practice clients who have something like a stevia dropper in their purse and they're putting it in everything like. Mm-hmm. in their tea, in their coffee, like in their iced tea when they get it out at a restaurant, like just sweetening everything. Right. We have like what feels like a little bit more compulsive food issues. Yeah. Versus yeah, no, someone who that. might use something like that once a day or every once in a while. Um, yeah. But it is really interesting because you're kind of making a case for like a tablespoon of honey if you really wanted something sweet. Yeah. Yeah. And I would also like, I would urge them to possibly um, like start to cut it in half or in some way to like keep on cutting it in half from where they are. Because the other thing that happens and people don't realize it, and it's one of these things where it's like um, you don't believe it because it sounds so. I mean, I don't know. I think people believe it in theory, but they don't believe it's actually going to be influencing them. But yeah. it really does change your threshold for sweetness um, in a way that promotes um, the overconsumption of sweet foods um, because it, it basically erodes your ability to experience pleasure from actual sugar. Wow. So it's actually eroding. And so it's just like, this is eroding your ability to like, enjoy, enjoy a, a cookie. Yeah. And so wow. you need two cookies. So basically, you know, it's like in order to get like to hit that threshold of pleasure that people who don't have this like, you know, sort of palate that's been hit by all of these overly sweet things. Um, you know, we have to eat one cookie to hit this pleasure pleasure threshold. And to hit this same threshold, these folks have to eat like two or three. Wow. And it really changes like what the thresholds are for enjoyment. And so um you know, anything that they can do to start to even sort of back off of those things a little bit, just they need to take the long view and say like, in the short time, you might be afraid that it's going to make you feel like you need to go eat a cookie or whatever. But if you do that, that's fine. Just remember that, you know, in three months from now, if you look at the number of cookies that you've eaten over the three month period, it's going to be lower. Yeah. Long so initially, game. yeah, you got you to take the long view with this stuff. I love it. Long game yeah. with birth control, long game with your kids' behaviors with food, long yes. game when it comes to like bonding, long game with alternative sweeteners. I'm on board yeah. for all of it. This was so much fun, Dr. Hill. Thank you so much for, for coming on the show and for spending time with me. I'm definitely really excited to have you back when that time comes to talk yeah. all about food because I feel like we, we are just scratching the surface. Um, of your research. And um, I just so appreciate it. So um, the last question I ask everyone on the podcast is what does body love mean to you? What does body love? I think that body love means really having grace with yourself and understanding that you are like a biological creature, right? And that, that we're all a mix of like positives and negatives and sort of um, understanding like that, um, that we're kind of just doing the best that we can with what we've been dealt. I think compassion. I love that. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time. Where can people follow along? Where can they find your book? 
my book is available on Amazon or Barnes and Noble anywhere that um, anywhere that books are sold, and that's this is your brain on birth control. And um, they can also find me on um, any of the social media um, things. My handle is uh, Sarah with an H, so Sarah E Hill PhD is my handle, and then my website is sarahehill.com. Awesome. Yeah, you have a. I love that you had a blog and that you were putting up posts, yeah. and your research is all linked there. It's it's a it's a juicy website to hit up after they read the book. So yeah. thank you, thank you, thank you for your time. I had so much fun. Thank you for listening to Be Well by Kelly. Please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at bewellbykelly.com and follow me on Instagram at bewellbykelly. I would love if you picked up my books, Body Love and Body Love Every Day. They're sold on Amazon and at all major booksellers. 